And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan, on the first real sort of snow day we've had in Chicago this winter. What, you've been stuck in the house, unable to get out? Well, it was a half inch of snow, and it was very pretty to look at. But no, we were able to get out and go walking. <laughs> okay. Well, see, I thought the snow day concept was where, you know, you, you couldn't go to school and that kind of thing. Oh, that's the term snow day. That's absolutely true. Uh, there are... Uh, there are one or two days like that per year. It's never as bad in Chicago as people think it is. Okay. Because Snow Day returns me. Okay, here's yep. one of the things we can throw out every once in a while. Yep. Because every once in a while you use a phrase like that, and it flashes an old science fiction novel that's completely forgotten named Snow Fury. Lord. And I'm thinking it was by an author named Richard Holden. I don't know who he is either. You could probably wiki him now and it seems to me it was it was an apocalyptic it was a snow apocalypse novel back in it must have been the 50s or 60s okay and, so, and, and this is what co co comes to mind in a, in a passing moment is it well i mean the you know when you when you when you've been reading as long as i have almost any random phrase is going to remind you, remind you at least of the title of the novel yep but I think one of the things we could start doing occasionally uh, is mentioning novels that see if anybody else has ever heard of them. Fantastic cover, Gary. For uh, Snow Fury. Yeah. Do you remember it? No. Oh, you looked at the cover of it. Okay. I've got Snow the cover in front of me. Yeah, and it's sort of you know manly man with his hat on and you know and this woman sort of cl clutched in his arms. There's snow everywhere, and there's some guy dressed up like a cow, uh, like this, this skeleton. Uh, tumbling into the foreground that's been lying in the snow for ages. The story of a scientific experiment that threatened to destroy the world. Awesome. Oh. <laughs> well, if any of our listeners have ever heard of Snow Fury, let us know because because after a while you begin to real you begin to think maybe this is a science fiction novel I only dreamed about. Maybe it never really got written. Oh, it's about snow that eats people, Gary. Yes, yeah, something like that. <laughs> I never read that book. <laughs> I'm surprised it didn't get optioned by the movies. Well, I, I, I've told you the one that I'm the thing that I've read in the last year that I'm surprised has not been optioned as a movie. Now, just mm -hmm. made, in fact, it hasn't been made. It is the greatest kids science fiction film idea that I've come across in a long time, and it was recommend. It's a, a three a three issue comic series that Ellen Clay just recommended to me called Mister mm -hmm. Stuffins. She told me about that when she was here. Yeah, it sounds terrific. It is. Well, basically, it's the story of a scientist working for the U.S. military who develops a piece of software that can be loaded into uh, attack robots. And they will, they will basically bootstrap up, up assess their, envir their environment and attack kind of a thing. But this guy mm -hmm. realizes it's going to be put to... You know, terrible purposes. So he t takes his program and he and he leaves. He he runs. He's being chased by the CIA or whoever it is, and he runs into the toy store, which is where logically where you'd go when you wanted to hide military intelligence. Uh, <laughs> cracks open the, the the box, this box which has this teddy bear, Mister Stuffins, in it. Takes out the a disc that has the programming for the bear on it and puts in his disc that has the thing. And of course, they're compatible the way these things would be. Uh, puts it back in the box and leaves. After that, this little boy and his dad come in, and you know the the parents are separated and family's not doing too well they buy the toy take it home even though the boy's a little bit too old to be having a teddy bear and the father's going maybe you want like a gun or something uh guy the, the kids turns on the the bear nothing happens at first he goes he figures it's broken but what's happening is of course it's bootstrapping up 
uh, becoming aware of the body that it has, turns itself on. The first thing it sees is the back of the box, which says, for further instructions, call this number. So it calls that number, and the recorded message says, you know, our primary goal is to look after the children that, you know, and make sure they are safe and well sort of thing, right? So mm-hmm. basically the rest of the story is this bear fighting off the CIA who's trying to recover the bear intelligence from the kid because they found them. And it's a fantastic kids idea or kids movie idea. It would make a fantastic film. Hmm. You should see it. You're sitting, there, you're sitting there going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, seriously, well, no, it's okay. great. Okay. Um, well, you're, you're talking about uh, attack teddy bears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I would. Okay. I. That sounds like a great concept, but it also sounds a lot like an old Theodore Sturgeon story called The Professor's Teddy Bear. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. There's 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 a core part of it that's that's quite simple, similar. Yes. Yeah. Which is not necessarily a bad thing, necessarily. Well, mm-hmm. unless it were uncredited, of course, then it would be a bad. Well, I, you know, there are tropes. There, there, there's this, there's a steam engine time argument about science fiction. There are ideas that may have popped up twenty or thirty or forty years ago in some obscure story and astounding or startling stories, and somebody reinvents it today. And I don't really think it's the responsibility of uh, a modern science fiction or fantasy or graphic novel writer to to do bibliographical research to make sure that nobody's played with the idea before. And this sounds like a compelling treatment of the idea. Well, well, yes. Well, it is a very compelling treatment of the idea. And I guess it also depends, because I don't completely disagree with you, and it ties into the conversation about copyright that I used to have a mm-hmm. friend of mine, Jeremy Byrne, uh, when we yeah, had lunch together. Yeah. And he had this feeling that a lot of the things that we view as copyright are things which pass into, I mean, appropriately pass into our shared mm-hmm. popular culture. And that, within certain limits, we should be able to freely reincorporate and reuse our own culture as culture continues to evolve. It's part of that evolutionary process with ideas. Uh, And without rampantly stealing something from somebody, I think that's entirely reasonable. Yeah, I I, I think it, it happens in mainstream literature all the time. I mean, because, oh, let's say because... Mark Twain wrote uh, Huckleberry Finn that nobody else can write uh, a novel about a voyage down the Mississippi River. Or even a voyage. Um, and yet people face. do that all the time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You'd imagine every time you you, you, know, you drop in a, a boy whitewashing a fence scene, it's like, well, you pay, have you paid the Twain estate, really? I mean, you really need to. Mm-hmm. It would be becoming absurd and unworkable. And um, one of the things that happens, especially in a field like science fiction, which I think... Um, there are nostalgia freaks who would disagree with me on this. By and large, the writing in science fiction has gotten better and better and better since it started. Mm-hmm. And if somebody takes a Stanley Weinbaum idea, and Stanley Weinbaum was a delightful and, and inventive writer and so forth, but <clears throat> you can write that stuff better now. And I don't think people should be prohibited from doing that. No, I, I, I agree completely. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think at the moment at which you cut you you interrupt that dialogue that flow that we keep talking about of idea to concept work to, you know one one generation of work to another and everything else then you kill off the field as we know it and it wouldn't have any way of reasonably evolving i don't think so you know i, I wonder if that's one of you suppose that's one of the things that uh, the cory doctor had in mind in, in rewriting old science fiction titles and new concepts wouldn't Not surprise that he was not that he was claiming he could do it better, but he was claiming this is still good material for, you know, for a 21st century writer to work with. 
Truthfully, I mean, I, okay, yes, in part, I think that's true. I also suspect, and I vaguely recall a conversation that I probably misremember, where there's something flat out mischievous about it, and deliberately mischievous in the sense that he knows that it irritates some people to reuse titles, so he would do it on purpose because mm. he enjoyed being just a little bit, you know, playful with those sort of things. But also making sure that that those those stories that he wrote, in some sense, were reimaginings of the original story um were in dialogue with that original text mm. and, and and commented on it uh, inverted it sometimes and that, that's why you know, you'd see him with the various rewrites that he did of I, I robot which i think he did two or three like, of I wrote I, yeah uh but also uh when he when he redid um oh gosh i'm just trying to think which one it was but there, there were several of them that he, that he rewrote and i uh, i think he may have been going to do a fahrenheit 451 one but then there was also the you know, the exquisite thing, and which he loved. I mean, it was interesting. I know people got got annoyed in the modern era when David Moles wrote a story for me called Down and Out wow. the Magic Kingdom, right? Right. Which was a take on Corey's novel title. Right. The first person to applaud it was Corey himself. In fair. Of course, because he's, it, 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 in in a way, it's a tribute to Corey by doing exactly what Corey had been doing. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I will say I was the editor who published that story, and I made a point of sending it to Corey before, not before I bought it, but before I published it, because I yeah. was curious as to how he would uh, respond to that, and he responded the way you would hope, you know, sort of that he thought was fantastic, and the story that his story, uh, sort of the mole story, did invert uh, a lot of what was happening in the um, in the Doctor story, just as Doctor story and his game, for example, uh, completely inverted. What was happening in um, Ender's Game? In yeah, right. Exactly. Hard story. So yes, and, that, that, yeah, that's, I, those ideas evolve. And, and there's if, if, a good idea is worth flogging a little bit, I suppose. Well, also, I mean, as most writers will readily admit, the least interesting part about what they do is the idea. You know, um, I think that's true, um, and and most of them are very open about. Um, Looking at their sources, it's interesting that within our field, this is seldom this is seldom controversial when a science fiction writer takes a mainstream novel and reworks it. And there are just lots of examples of that. Nobody gets upset about Conrad when uh, when, when uh, Bob Soberberg writes The Secret Sharer, or about Faulkner when Binford writes Against Infinity, or about uh, The Prisoner of Zenda when Heinlein writes Double Star. Writers have always done this. Yeah. Somehow, in our field, people get sensitive if somebody does exactly the same thing to Heinlein that Heinlein did to Anthony Hope. <laughs> well, yes. Well, that that's because when you're when you're playing in in our sandpit, even when we ourselves are playing in our sandpit, we we can be insanely protective and parochial about it at times. You know. Uh, I guess so. And I'm not. I, I can't entirely say. It. Well, I, I can sort of understand it. Understand it. But there's an awful lot of things which other people get worked up about that don't really motivate, you know, sort of irritate me very much. And this is one of those things. If someone said, oh, Stephen King wrote a story in 1975 and now uh, Laird Barron has written a story reprising it using a similar idea, you know, I'd mm -hmm. kind of go, well, that's part of the natural evolution of things. And you would hope it would. And uh, to some degree, whether or not it, you know, hopefully without actually reaching the stage of a copyright violation, um, mm -hmm. it, it's actually an affirmation of the original writer that they were considered interesting enough and worthwhile enough to be revisited, that they were, that they were read well enough. 
Well, and if it's if it's reasonably public knowledge, then it might send some people back to reading classic stories that they didn't know before. Oh, sure. King was very uh, Stephen King was very open about uh, talking of about uh, Pet Cemetery as his version of the Monkey's Paw, mm -hmm. the classic W. Jacobs story, and he said that in interviews. I'm pretty sure if he didn't. Oh, sure. Um, I just, I'm fan. But the point is, if that means a chunk of Stephen King writers are going to go back and read one of the classic horror stories of all time. Uh, that's not doing any harm to that story at no, all. No, I mean, that said, nobody wants us to think that someone will go and take a slightly obscure Theodore Sturgeon story, say, from 1956, say, mm. uh, change the title, fiddle a few details, and then whack it out as being their own work. That's a different matter. It is indeed. Uh, and I suspect... I suspect, is, is that something that creates anxiety in you as an editor? I mean, I, no. I've, I've, I've mentioned this to Gordon a couple of times in the Sheila, that there's always, partly this is coming from academia, where you always know once a semester you're going to get a, a paper from a student that they just basically mm. took from Wikipedia. Um, but, so that's not something you worry about? Just No, I don't, okay, first of all, I don't think you can. Uh, I, I can tell you, tell you that I'm, I know that Sheila and Gordon are incredibly widely read in the field. Uh, mm -hmm. And I try to read widely in the field, which means there's a good chance that you will pick up some things a bit awry, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, if it happens, then you're as much a victim as anybody else. You know, uh, you, 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 tr you take people on faith that they're going to actually be presenting their own work. And, and you actually, when, you come, when the time comes to buy it, you legally require them to assert that it's their own work. You know? Uh, well, that's true in the contract itself. Absolutely, but you know, and, and also there's there's that trick that gets done every now and again, which you can fall victim to, or someone will go and get you know, nine billion names of God or something, and they'll take the name off it and they'll submit it to you, pretending it's something else, and you'll reject it because you don't think it's any good, um, mm -hmm. and then they'll go, ha ha ha, this guy has no taste, he didn't like nine billion names of God when I submitted it to him, but you know, first of all, it, it may happen and you can't worry about it. Second of all, no, it says more about the person who's doing it and the person that's done to. And sometimes, maybe you didn't think the original original piece of work was any good anyway. That's always a possibility as well. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned something like the nine billion names of God, mm -hmm. which is one of the classic Clark stories that really doesn't make any sense. I mean, True. In, in, in Clark's own terms, it's. I mean, Clark always wrote these stories that had metaphysical endings that he repeatedly said he didn't believe in, but he thought they worked for the story. Yes. Uh, so, the, the, occasionally there are science fiction stories like that. Here's another one: um, the Cold Equations. I mean, yeah. the Cold Equations is probably the single most beaten up story in the history of science fiction. I don't know how many articles that are part pointing out the manifest flaws and sexism and illogic sure. and poor math and everything else. Um, but when James Patrick Kelly did his version of it with Think uh, Like a Dinosaur, I think that's the one. It's really a pretty good story. Yeah. And it works actually much better than the original did. Yes. Uh, and yet, I'm pretty sure that if you talk to Jim, um, and I have, uh, that he would that, that story would not have existed had it not been for the Tom Godwin story. I'm sure that's completely true. And, and what's more, I mean, I, I'm not going to be able to name a string of titles off the top of my head, but there, there plainly are a handful of stories that fall into that category, where people have deliberately written stories that uh, reimagine the basic idea that argue against the premise. This is irrespective of the hundreds of thousands of words of, 
of criticism and commentary written about the story, uh, which which critique it in, on literary grounds, on scientific grounds, and all sorts of grounds, and which prove beyond almost any doubt that those cold equations were, were really more cold editorial equations than cold fictional ones. Um, right. But I think, it, it, I mean, we're going around in circles a little, I suspect, but uh, it does come back to that dialogue is valuable and gives us something, you know. I think, yeah. uh, and, and, and it, hopefully what, what, what it does, amongst other things, is it adds nuance to something. I mean, we've talked any number of times about the entrance exam to getting into reading the field. We've talked any number of times about how you build up the tools to read science fiction in various ways, and that they're not necessarily essential, but for some works, you really need to know the reading protocols. And then, you know, you turn around and you look at a book. I'm trying to remember which one it was. There's one of Al Reynolds' early novels, which basically is a is a response to Rogue Moon by Aldous Budras. Right. Ah, yes, I know which one that is. That oh, well, we're not going to think about no. it at the moment. No, it's one of the first couple. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, the thing about it is, it didn't impact on your ability to read and enjoy the novel if um, you'd never you were unfamiliar with Rogue Moon, mm-hmm. which on one hand was was a good thing and good writing. It added something if you were familiar with Rogue Moon, and it was part of the way the field, and I have to say, and this is probably slightly outside the way Charles would have looked at it, part the way culture generally, it's, when we talk about you know, the field is, is about you know, being in dialogue with it's, it's, it's historical works and all that sort of thing, and it absolutely 100% is. I think the book mm-hmm. is Chasm City. Um, yeah, I could. That's right. But surely that's what all culture is. I mean, I mean, uh, we've tended to talk about it. I, I confess, in fairly, aren't we terribly clever? Let's give our, our, the genre a hug. We actually, we actually discuss our, you know, appreciating works. But it's a natural part of the evolution of culture. It's just that uh, it's happening within the field of science fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, which is not a terribly brilliant, very sort of sophomoric kind of thing to say, I guess. But nonetheless, I think it's worth bringing it to this because it's not something that's unique and special to our field. I don't think. Well, I, th- I think there are works that have, uh, to, to their credit, generated responses. I mean, you can, mm-hmm. um, I, I was talking to Chip Delaney once, uh, I'm trying to remember which one of his novels, it might have been Nova, that was a response to Starship Troopers. Because mm-hmm. uh, Chip's response to Starship Troopers was very interesting. On the one hand, it was uh, a novel which, in some central ways, he detested ideologically. On the other hand, that was the first novel in which he saw a character look in the mirror and looking somewhat like Chet. Yeah. Uh, so it's a massively important thing for any. I've, I've talked to any number of African American readers of science fiction for whom Heinlein is an iconic figure for that reason. Yeah. And yet, if you look at the, um, the there's this sense that okay, here's a very important science fiction novel which we don't agree with, and you could put together a small library of responses to. Uh, uh, to, to Starship Troopers, from, from Joe Haldeman to Harry Harrison. Sure. And sure. all of those are ways of recognizing the novel and reimagining some of the better parts of the novel in an ideologically different way. I think it was, I'm not sure of this, but I'm pretty sure it was after a canticle for uh, Leibowitz that we started getting this convention of the uh, post-apocalyptic neo-medieval future, which is now a standard trope uh, in science fiction and fantasy for the last four decades. That sounds about right to me. That does sound about right. Uh, I don't doubt that there will be some um, preceding works which touch on it in, in, in less substantial ways, but that was the book that changed it all for that. 
Yeah. Are there books like that being written today? Are there books that really you think people are going to be answering this book for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years? Ooh. Huh. That's an interesting question. Um, I would need to really sit and think. And I don't want to put a big sort of empty dead spot in the middle of the podcast while I do. Um, oh, yeah. Well... It, it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some if one of Greg Geegan's books fell into that area because they're conceptually interesting. It wouldn't... Mm-hmm. It was something like Permutation City. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, the problem with answering that question is that you either... The problem with answering the question is that you need to have thought of that really carefully. Uh, and, and you need a work which was startling at the time. I suspect the books which we see now as having had that happen, looking back with 30, 20, 30, mm-hmm. 40 years of hindsight, they were startling books at, this, at the time. So, you know, Neuromancer was startling in its day as an obvious yeah. example. And you're really saying and it was startling in, 19, in 2005 or 10 or whatever. And the book which should come to mind, right, Mm -hmm. is The Wind-Up Girl, except it's not startling at all, uh, I don't think. So I don't see it being the book, not to sort of put it down in any way because it's a a terrific book. But, um, oh, I I don't know. Oh, uh, okay, here's an example. I don't have any specific titles in mind because I think you're right. I I think we may not be startled by anything in the field anymore. Maybe we think, oh, that's a good example. But... Is there, for example, I thought when I read the first uh, Kathleen Angunan novel, first of her nanotech, uh, Queen City Jazz, I think it was. Yeah. And I thought, okay. Uh, or, or when I read Paul McCauley's um, uh, Fairy, Fairyland, um, that there, there, here's, here's a new kind of paradigm which is different from Neuromancer's paradigm. Yeah. And, but yet I couldn't think of a single one nanotechnology novel that did for that sort of theme what Neuromancer did for its theme. I, I can't, well, to be fair, I, to be fair, I can't think of many things that did for Neuroman, for their thing what Neuromancer did for its thing. Well, that's true. That may be unfair. You know, I mean, you're talking about a genuinely transformative text, um, even if it doesn't sort of hold quite the same power after all these years, it's still sort of, yeah, it, 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 it is a, Touchstone work. Um, I mean, if you go back come, before yeah. Neuromancer, I suppose, yeah. I suppose the, the book before Neuromancer that would fit in this category is probably The Left Hand of Darkness. It would be one of them, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the whole gender discussion in science fiction it doesn't stem from that book, but it really got lively after that book. And, yeah. and it's one of the few books that gave a word to the vocabulary that other science fiction writers just appropriate. Ansibles are all over science fiction now. Yeah. Do you think there are time bomb works, uh, works which were written at a particular time, weren't enormously uh, influential at the time, or were slightly influential, but then after mm-hmm. an extended period of time suddenly sort of you know, pop up again and become much more relevant and influential and so on? My first response to that is most of Cordwainer Smith. Ooh, I don't, really? I don't think anybody was trying to write Cordwain or Smith stories in the 50s or the early 60s. Yeah. And 20 or 30 years later, everybody wants to somehow create that effect. Yeah. Uh, okay. and, and what it involved with, and this is why I think he was decades ahead of his time, yeah. was that you had 
multilingual punning ant. You had very sophisticated literary techniques, and you had multicultural approaches. There were like German, Japanese, Chinese cultural things embedded in the future. You had technology worked out that was never uh, explained very much. Yep. As a matter of fact, we were talking um, a couple of weeks ago about uh, Anne McCaffrey, and we both yep. decided we like the ship who sang. Yes. The ship who sang had a, you know, basically a brain operating a, a spaceship, and if you go back to Cordwainer Smith again, you've got uh, the one about the cats, the game of rat and dragon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he was doing things 20 or 30 years before they became conventions. They're almost conventions now. Yes, I think that's true. I think it's very. And true. he was also a wildly romantic writer at a time when hard science fiction and romance were considered almost opposite yeah. ends of the spectrum. I mean, I was for some reason I don't know why I was rereading Alpha Alpha. I know I know I was reading an article about it. Mm -hmm. Alpha Alpha Boulevard is an astonishing story. Uh, yes, and it could have been written last year. Well, it is, it is one of those stories which does beg. You know, you want to describe it as timeless because it was so much out of out of its own time anyway. That the idea mm -hmm. of it fitting into any particular time is irrelevant. You know, it's 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 like it's like Gormenghast. Yeah, you know, Gormenghast sits out of time all by itself because it's such a eccentric kind of a, a piece of work. And there's the same thing about um, the um, you know the Cordwain Smith stories. So yeah, well, and you could, you could make an argument, I suppose, if you wanted to be a little bit technical about it, that the Lord of the Rings had been out for something along the lines of 10 years, am I right, before the Ballantine edition came out? It was, and yeah. yeah. The, the massive impact it had followed on the Ballantine edition. That's true. Um, that was that discovered there was a mass market for this sort of thing. It wasn't long after that. I actually talked to Betty Ballantine about that. She apparently edited the first three or four titles that became the Ballantine adult fantasy series. It was only titled the Valentine Adult Fantasy Series after they hired Lynn Carter. So that all came about, as she said, we, we found this huge market with Tolkien and we wanted to find some more stuff we could sell. Yes. And if it was in the public domain, even better. <laughs> Do you think something like, uh, I, I will say, the author that, was, that I had in mind when you were saying that was Joanna Russ, and as to whether she is the kind of writer who pops up after, if you like, 20 or 30 years of sort of not seeming to be discussed that much, to suddenly being discussed a lot. I think that's true in terms of some of her works, but not others, I think. Because I am, I will now say boastfully, old enough to remember the impact that the female man had at sure. the time. It was astonishing. Nobody had seen anything like that. <clears throat> I mean, Le Guin had not written like that. Yeah. Nobody had written anything like that. So that had an immediate impact. When you look at some of her really... Uh, spectacular novels that didn't get discussed in the same way at the time we are about to, for example, of the two of us. I think you're absolutely right. I think it took a long time for Russ as something more uh, than a feminist firebrand to be recognized as a writer of, a feminist writer in all kinds of dimensions, obviously, but a writer of, of, of a wide variety of stuff. And I think that Russ's other works, other than that one, took years to be recognized. Yeah. And I think, fortunately, she is being recognized now. Well, it feels like she's being mainstreamed within the genre now. Really? Mainstreamed? You mean main, within the mainstream of the genre? Well, yeah, I, maybe I'm putting that wrongly. It's just that she's become such a dominant figure in the discussion of the field mm -hmm. that it's increasingly difficult to imagine the field without her impact. And it feels to me, perhaps incorrectly, and it may just be personal, 
that a lot of it. Oh, how to put it? A lot of that impact is fresh and new and recent. Uh, you know that that it, that it, you know, is something which has happened over the last three to five years, say. I hope that's true. I mean, I hope people are actually going back and reading her material, and not only. Uh, there, there are three ways in which I think Joanna Russ has impacted the field. One, one is the female man itself, and yeah. a, a few stories, you know, clustered around it. Um, uh, and the other is her entire body of other work, which includes the cat story, uh, and 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 we are about to, and that sort of thing. And the third impact, which I think has only come to be recognized in the last few years, is is as a critic and a, and a mm -hmm. reviewer, because again, she was. Uh, and, and we have, ironically, we have pretty much her collected reviews in print and, and, and still not her collected stories. So to some extent, I, I wonder if her impact can't be assessed until more people gain access to her works. Well, we and shall. Well, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I go to Wisconsin every year, uh, and uh, which as much as any convention celebrates Joanna Russ, and they're very conscientious about it, and yep. she is clearly a hovering figure over the entire concept of Wiscon. Yeah. And I meet a lot of young writers who know the name and keep thinking, well, I'm going to read her one of these days. Yes. Or who may have read The Female Man and nothing else. Yes. And think that's her heritage. Yes, I think that's true. So one of the things about influence, which I think is a... Uh, has been a problem is, and you, you, you and I have talked about this before, uh, growing up in Australia, finding bookshops, finding things that might have been in print 10 or 20 or 30 years after their original appearance, people in my generation buying used paperbacks, um, and, and even the paperback industry keeping people almost continuously in print um, for uh, year after year after year. And now that's harder to do. I mean, now you have to seek out classic books. They're not going to show up in the bookstore. Um, and even things that you would think would just never disappear, um, sometimes disappear for years or decades at a time. I was reading, we talked a little bit last week about um, Tim Powers' new novel. Yes. Me Among the Graves. Terrific. And, and, and it clearly refers back to, it's not a sequel, and I will say this parenthetically anybody who's worried, you don't have to have read The Stress of Her Regard. But I found out in looking up The Stress of Her Regard that it was out of print for something like 15 years. Really? Huh. That astonished me. Okay, it doesn't astonish me, but it surprises me. It surprises me, I mean, okay, it doesn't astonish me because I don't think it was his most accessible or easily readable work. Yeah? Uh, but okay, now, I, most of us who are English majors have to differ with that, but that's like... Somebody, somebody, somebody who grew up as an English lit major and a science fiction freak is thinking, okay, I, I, what I just want to see are Byron and Shelley and Keats in a good fantasy story. <laughs> And and he he brought it off, and now he's doing it with the Rossettis. But you you cannot tell me that that book is as accessible as the Annibal Gates or the Drawing of the Dark. Um, no, and it's not as accessible as On Stranger Tides. And it's a somewhat slow-paced book. Um, I loved it. I mean, I was a complete. I didn't say, no, I didn't say I didn't like it. I'm just sort of saying. It's 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 more meditative. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that no, one of the things I think is interesting about Powers now that we've segued into a completely different topic. Yeah. Is that his, his novels have become more novelistic. Uh, I still say this, and I, I don't mind saying this 
on our podcast because I said it to Tim, yeah. that the most fun I ever had with the Tim Powers novel was The Drawing of the Dark, which we talked about last week in fact. Yeah. Um, the most literary novel of his that I know is Declare. And I think what, what, what I've wanted to see is kind of combining that just sheer adventure with, uh, with some of the you know, literary and historical research. And I think he's, he's learning how to do that. He's, he's bringing the two versions of Ten Powers together in an interesting way. But the fact, the point I was starting to make was that some books which we regard as being very influential in the, in the, in the genre are not necessarily always available to all people. Not they are all. always That's available true. because you can always, you can always get cheap copies on ABE or Via Libras or something like that. Yeah. But you have to know to look for them. You do. Uh, and even, you know, the recent efforts to make these, a lot of these older books available digitally doesn't necessarily in some ways make them much more accessible. Because you have to be aware of them, you have to be able to, mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. So um, it's not a straight, you know, it, I'm, I'm not sure what the solution is to it. And I, it may just be part of the, the natural life cycle of things. Books disappear, books reappear. Um, and uh, I, I guess what be, Yeah, sorry. Well, one of our listeners corrected us on this because we were talking about the value of going into a used bookstore and stumbling across a book. And I, for, I, I forget who it was, but whoever it is who sent us this email saying you can really stumble across books on the internet as well as you could in bookstores. I'd like to hear more about that because what I don't see on the internet is, I, I'll give you a specific experience, going into a used bookstore and finding uh, a used paperback copy of Clifford Simak's City, which I vaguely heard of, and I'd read some Simak short stories, and I thought, this sounds like it might be fun, and then I took it home. Yeah. Uh, it's not a book I would have sought out. It's a book that just was there in front of me, so I bought it for a quarter or something. Sure. Um, and I <clears throat> I still don't understand how you can have that experience on the web. I, I don't particularly either. Um, and I, I mean, I find browsing books on the web to be an unfriendly experience by and large. Yeah, mm. and, and by that I mean, okay, let, let's be completely Luddite about it. When I was 11 or 12 years old, I remember mm. going into the city on a Saturday morning because... You know, there's no the stores were closed over the weekends except from eight o'clock till noon on Saturdays, and I'd go book go to bookstore and they would have you know the major bookstore in the city had one rack of science fiction titles. So there was I can't, there can't have been more than a couple hundred books there in retrospect, mm -hmm. and it didn't take you long to go through them all looking at their spines bit by bit. Yeah, that is a higher bandwidth information exchange than scrolling through a list of stuff. Yeah, you know. Uh, there's more immediate information you know, delivered to you. And then, yeah, there's always this thing. I mean, how do you find the unexpected thing? I mean, I found A Princess of Mars in a used bookstore one afternoon because, well, it was there and the cover looked about right and I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. But I wouldn't have stumbled across it otherwise. And I don't want to li live in a world of recommendations only. I feel that, that, that rather than opening you up to surprising and unexpected new things, that kind of puts you into a sealed eco ecosystem if recommendation is your only way of finding out about new things. I don't think I would want to be trapped in the world of Amazon's algorithms of what, if you like this book, you would like that book. Yeah. Because they're always wrong. <laughs> They've always absolute crap when they say you should, you should read this too. Or, or people who bought this book also bought... This book, and my first reaction, well, they shouldn't have. You know, they should have talked to somebody first. 
well, yes, you, you do get that. I mean, every now and again, you do look at something and they say, you know, if you like this, you would like that. Or customers who bought this also bought that. And you're going, they did? They really, really did? Yeah. I think I've told this on the podcast before, but I'll repeat it because it's probably been months. But I, I used to buy kids' toys. I mean, I buy my grandkids' toys, you know, when they were little kids. Yeah. And, and somehow, what you buy in the toy department gets conflated with what you're buying in the book department. Mm -hmm. So when I, at some point, uh, ordered a copy, I think, of um, Elizabeth Hand's Generation Loss, yeah. for which the sequel is coming out. And I get this thing saying, people who liked Generation Loss, now keep in mind, Generation Loss is a very tough-minded, uh, brittle, sure, sure. Uh, bleak uh, mystery novel, really, about a burned-out photographer who grew up in the New York drug scene in the 70s and so forth. And Amazon told me that people who like Generation Loss also like Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> no, they don't. That was just me. <laughs> but but also there's there's also there's also a weird thing. I mean, I was just you know just just test it. I was looking and thinking, okay, is there an example I can look at? And I thought, well, okay, what do people who've bought the Wind Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi also buy according to Amazon? And oh, one, interesting. And one of the options they kick out is Leviathan by Scott Westerfeld, right? Mm. And what's really weird is I can see wind-up girl readers who like Leviathan. I'm not sure I can see Leviathan readers who like the wind-up girl, if you see what yeah. I mean. You know, I know exactly. Depending, mm. depending on how you, you flow the, the, the influence kind of thing or, the, or track the chart from one location to the other. And some I could never imagine liking. I mean, why would someone who liked the wind-up girl like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? Oh, I did like both songs. Is that on the other? Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. Well, one of the things, oh, I, I don't know. One of the things that confuses that list is it's not only people who are buying books; it's been by people who are buying gift books for other people. Sure. And I mean, you probably had the experience of having somebody get you a gift because they know you're vaguely interested in science fiction and fantasy. Mm -hmm. And my family, for example, would get me a gift of Twilight. Yep. I never had a copy of Twilight until somebody gave it to me. Yep, and you sang last week, yeah. I, and I read part of it. Yes. But by and large, that's not that, that's not an example of, 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 a, of a reasonable you know algorithm of what people's taste people's no. tastes are. No. Okay. Yes. Shall we change topics? Let's do that. I, I have one for Please. you. Oh yes, good. Okay, here's my one. Earlier this year, I'm I'm going I'm to walk back through the mists of time. Earlier this year, I was I was doing my annual short story reading for the best of the year, and I came across a story published by Subterranean Press, written by Mark Laidlaw. Mm -hmm. uh, the story is a, um, a thing called "The Boy Who Followed Lovecraft," and mm -hmm. I don't know if you read the story. It's a, it's a six or seven thousand word novelette. Actually, or short story. Is that the one that ends with his disillusionment? Very much so. Yes. Yes, I know that story. It's and a it's a very powerful story. I mean, I was torn, actually, to be honest with you, as to whether it was a gimmick or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and pro probably that that may be the only thing that prevented me picking it up in my year's best. And also, because I didn't research the facts of it, and, and I'll, I'll link and I'll, I'll give it away in a second, um, mm -hmm. I wasn't sure how fa fair it was to Lovecraft. Because, I mean, basically... There's a boy following Mr. Lovecraft around Providence, yeah? Yeah. And it all seems all very fine because he's a great fan of Lovecraft, yada, yada, yada. And basically at the very end, just as Lovecraft's walking to this, into this movie theater to watch a film, 
this boy catches mm. up with him and he sort of goes, oh, Mr. Lovecraft, kind of like I'm a huge fan. And, you know, Lovecraft turns around, looks at him and sort of basically says, get away from me, you filthy. Yeah, N-word. N-word, yeah. And I was, I mean, I was shocked when I read it. And then I thought, well, was that actually the way Lovecraft thought? And is this a good literary thing to have done, I guess? And, of course, it turns out, based on a discussion this week, that mm-hmm. not only is it entirely representative of Lovecraft's point of view at a certain time in his life, but if anything, it may even be a mild version of uh, his views in terms of his racism, his anti-Semitism. One assumes uh, his homophobism, etc., etc., etc. Now, I, I guess you can. I would put in out of order. There is some evidence that's been, that I saw touched on in a news group that I'm in. That says that as, mm-hmm. as he aged, his views mellowed and evolved and changed. And he became, he basically, I went from being an appallingly horrific racist person to just being a sort of disturbingly disgusting racist person. Mm, I don't know. He didn't, first of all, he didn't age much at all. Well, well this, is the, this is the point, the commentary, and that, and we'll bring back to why we're bringing it up. But oh. uh, the thing the person who wrote this said was the guy died young. I mean, he was in his mm-hmm. late, mid to late 30s. And you don't know how his views may later have changed. That said, they were the views that he had. Now, this ties into, and I don't have a link to it to hand, it ties into a post from uh, your, our friend, uh, Nydia Korafor, the World mm-hmm. Fantasy Award winning author, who found herself taking home this year, or being actually being mailed because she couldn't be there, uh, the, the, a statuette for winning the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel. And for those mm-hmm. very, 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 very few listeners out there in the world who have not seen uh, the, the, um, the the award for the World Fantasy Award, the it's bust, act- yeah. the bust. It's actually a piece done by Garn Wilson. It's a caricature, a slight caricature of H.P. Lovecraft, done sort of in the style of an Easter Island head. Mm-hmm. And I must say, for a long time, when I was when I was reading Locust, not following things that closely, back in the mid to late 80s, I kind of thought it was sort of like an Easter Island head rather than anything to do with Lovecraft. But what ha- what Nettie points out very clearly and powerfully, and which she also brings in a quote from uh, China Mieville about it, uh, mm-hmm. is the deep conflict that she felt and that other people have felt about being given an award to honor your work when the symbol honoring that work is somebody who held repugnant views. And how, you know, how do you come to terms with that? How, you know, sh- should you start a campaign to change it? Um, is that something you can or, or should do? Uh, how, how, do, how do you explain it or what, how do you resolve it, I guess? Well, I think she's got, uh, in, in her blog post, and I've, I've gotten a couple of emails directing me to the blog post, um, she is conscious of being the first uh, uh, black writer to win the Best Novel Award for the World Fantasy Awards, and is enormously proud of that, and she's thinking she has that, you know, next to her, on her, on her mantle next to a Wally Soyinka Award, mm-hmm. and it has to be a very strange feeling on her part. Uh, and as you and I uh, have talked about also, 
you have to go back and think, okay, she's the first African-American writer to do that, but the number of Jewish writers, and he was sure. pretty clearly anti-Semitic. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's not just views he held in person. I mean, one of his stories that's very, uh, well, disturbing in that sense is the horror at Red Hook, because mm -hmm. he was living in the Hook section of Brooklyn for a while, and and swarthy. As a matter of fact, when he talks about swarthy, ugly people, he's sometimes talking about Italians as well. I mean, yeah. you, you go down the list of people that he didn't like. <laughs> yes. And they would make fine yeah. friends. Um, exactly. So you think, okay, any um, any Italian who's wanted, any Jewish writer who's wanted, any black writer who's wanted, you're right, any gay writer who's wanted. No, no. I don't know. A any non-heterosexual Anglo-Saxon person, basically. Right, exactly. But then, um, as somebody who emailed me that link said, how many awards would we have to rename? Um, I mean, one of the reasons the Nobel Prize exists is because Alfred Nobel realized he was going to his grave known as the Merchant of Death. Yeah. Uh, and how many people have pointed out the irony of giving the Nobel well, Peace Prize to the guy who invented dynamite? Well, 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 true. But then on the other hand, I mean, also no Nobel made that choice. Mm -hmm. You know, he set up the infrastructure yes, for the yes. prize and everything else. Whereas Lovecraft went to his death, presumably pretty much believing the same stuff that he had all along. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. You know, um, and so he, he, had, he had no knowledge of um, of the fact that he would be used as a symbol for some award later on. Uh, I, I've tried to think about it. I mean, you're right, because, I mean, Avram Davidson is a great example. I mean, here's a man who won two World Fantasy Awards. He also got a Lifetime Achievement Award. So he was well acquainted with Lovecraft and with, with the World Fantasy Award. And mm -hmm. he was a man famous for refusing to deal with anti-Semites in any way, you know. Yeah. I mean, he would refuse, I mean, he refused to have any of his work tra uh, translated into German or published by, in Germany, or published by companies that were owned by Germans, or published by he companies that were owned that. by companies that were owned by Germans. God, thank goodness he died before Bertelsmann took over the world. Well, pretty much. He would not have been happy to have had the Avram Davidson Treasury published by Tor. And I know yeah. something to um, Jack Dan. Jack did a book back in the mid-70s, Wandering Stars, which is a collection mm -hmm. of Jewish science fiction. And he reprinted right. one of Avram's stories in the book. And I think unbeknownst, because these things will, will sometimes slip through the cracks, a German edition actually appeared. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Jack had to work out how to deal with this fact. You know, how, how do you tell Avram that this thing which he's absolutely forbid is contractually forbidden and which you found morally repugnant? How do you um, deal with that? I think it was a very complicated thing to resolve. Um, since you, I think the issue, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, uh, the the issue underlying Nettie's questioning of this, and she, again, I emphasize at the end of the blog post, she's very honored by being recognized by her peers in this way. But is Lovecraft the right image? now for an award that was created decades ago when it was largely a horror award and largely a nostalgic horror award in its first years. I, I, I'm not 100% sure. Part of, like, there's a part of me that loves tradition in our field. And a part of me goes, a World Fantasy Award looks like a World Fantasy Award. That's what the World Fantasy Award looks like. If you changed it, you would change the World Fantasy Awards and so, I, you know, I, for that reason, I, I like the status quo. Um, I also, I, I, I touched on this, and I haven't really sort of fully worked it out in my own mind how I feel about it, but part of me sort of goes, you know what? If the purpose 
of the symbol of the award is to represent the evolution and history of our field, be it fantasy or horror, or fantasy and horror, mm-hmm. then Lovecraft remains an appropriate symbol because he represents the evolutionary history of the field, certainly. Uh, I mean, here is a, a tremendously influential writer who has created work which has had a fundamental impact on the the evolution of the field to today and also who had political views that were horrible and everything else but which nonetheless are still in the field in a way you know I mean what I think about is how much Mm -hmm. fantasy for example has troubling politics how, you know, the, the, tr- the basic troubling pol- politics of epic fantasy itself, you know, it, it, is it okay? Does to some extent? Hang on, why is it? Does to some extent? Let's work this out for a second. Does to, does to some extent choosing a figure like Lovecraft over time transform from honouring a giant of, of the field to also embedding a kind of warning as well? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, one one way of looking at that is if you could figure out any other iconic figure, if you're going to do this. I mean, part part of the subtext of this also, I think, is that I, you mentioned the Easter Island um, appearance of the statue, sure. and that was a little joke. I'm pretty sure on Galen Wilson's. And Galen Wilson is not an unsophisticated guy. So so one argument is you could say, well, the joke is not on you. The joke is on Lovecraft because he's now. Uh, you know, being used mm-hmm. as an image for, 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 for Jews and Italians and blacks that he didn't want to have anything to do with. But what if, uh, what if you did, what if you did Tolkien himself? There was, there, there are some questions about Tolkien's attitudes toward, uh, sure. toward uh, Jewish people. And uh, right, yeah. There's the question of uh, Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book, one of the most financially successful fantasies of the last couple of decades being deliberately modeled on a work by Kipling whose attitudes toward blacks was sure. pretty problematical. Sure, sure. Um, and I don't know if it's wishful thinking, I don't know if it's naive, I don't know if it's simplistic, but the idea that Lovecraft being used as a symbol of the finest in their field becomes both a kind of a warning and also a retrospective highlighting of the problems with Lovecraft, I guess. And well, it is. It's is, 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 is not a bad thing. I, I Once I had a brief conversation with... Here's one of the other ironies of that. Um, the, the leading Lovecraft scholar ever, the one who has done more serious work on Lovecraft than anybody else, is S.T. Joshi, who's, in, who's Indian. Sure. Um, who, 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 and, 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 and Joshi does not make excuses for that. No. No. Um, he, he, he's, he's trying to separate the fiction from the man, which I think is a, uh, a, a worthwhile thing to try to do. Um, the other way of dealing with it, which is what Ellen Clagis, our, our, our um, indefatigable friend, found out when I brought home one, that, that she, there's a certain set of doll clothes, uh, a sailor suit, uh, a, a, a mortarboard, and uh, academic gown, which exactly fit the World Fantasy Award bust. Mm-hmm. And you can make Lovecraft look like a chippy little sailor with a yellow red, uh, yellow rain sticker on, and that sort of thing. 
Which well, I did for a while. I know, I know. I'm well aware that you did. Um, so, t- so tell me for the pur- well for the purpose of our reader, since you read the post more recently, I think than I did. Mm-hmm. What point did Nettie get to in her discussion of it? I think um, she. Well, first of all, she quoted that poem, which I'd never seen before. No, which is just absolutely appalling. I mean, it's just it's like something the Klan could have sponsored. Yeah, and. Uh, and, and and began with the you know receiving the award, which she was not there to receive. I, I I'm not sure she had a clear picture of what it was going to look like until she got it, and then sort of worked her way through. Uh, should she even want to keep this thing? And eventually got back to the point that this you know this is recognition from a group of well not exactly your peers, but a group of people who are very serious about fantasy. Yeah. yeah. And and frankly, who are probably much more sophisticated about fantasy than. Uh, than they might have been at the beginning of the World Fantasy Awards. I don't think she's comfortable with the bus. We we can ask oh. her about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd like that. Totally get Nettie on here. Well, I mean, did you did you read China? What well, I think China's yes. comment on it was that he has it in his study and keeps it turned to the wall so that he mm. basically feels as though he's, if you like, writing behind Lovecraft's back. Well, that's kind of what I think. I mean, there there, there there's an added irony to this too um, that. Lovecraft was the first really successful uh, pop culture figure from our world to be featured in the Library of America, which is a very prestigious uh, set of reprints. The Library of America was originally the conception, although he didn't live to see it executed, of Edmund Wilson, the great American critic who wrote for The Nation and The New Yorker back in the 40s and 50s. Wilson actually wrote a review column about uh, Lovecraft, which is devastatingly funny. Yeah. but really ill-tempered at the same time. I mean, every once in a while, somebody outside the field can write an attack on our field or something, somebody in our field, yeah. which is right, but you wish it wasn't them who'd said it. <laughs> and I thought, I thought one of the ironies about Lovecraft is that he shows up in the Library of America when, when, when the great establishment critics of, of his time would have rolled over in their graves to find that happening. Yeah, very much. Uh, so so, so you, you, there, there are just ironies upon ironies upon ironies in this. Yeah. Um, there is my, my problem. Yeah. My, my, my problem with um, my when I tried to show my bus to people in the building, the woman who manages my building and that sort of thing, their first thought was, "That's really ugly." They have yeah. no idea who Lovecraft is. I mean, Lovecraft doesn't mean anything to nine out of ten people who will ever see this bus. In, in, sure. In, in sure. Bus. And and there's another group of people who will think, "Well, this is this is and a little." To a, to a certain degree, this is Gay and Wilson's joke on Lovecraft to begin with. If you ask Gay and Wilson to give you a, uh, an award design, it's going to have some Gay and Wilson irony in it. Yes. That's just the nature of, of, of his writing. So, so I, I think one of the things I like about the award is the multivalence of ironies that it represents. Sure, sure. I think that's true. I was going to say, I, I did pull up Nettie's post, and there's something she says, and I think it has very great merit and what she says is, uh, you know, do I want the you know the statuette replaced with the head of some other great writer? And she says, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it's about that time, maybe not. What I know I want is to fa- want is to face the history of this leg of literature rather than put it aside or bury it. If this is how some of the great minds of speculative fiction felt, then let's deal with that, as opposed to never mention it or explain it away. If Lovecraft's mm-hmm. likeness and name are to be used in connection with the World Fantasy Award, I think there should be some discourse about what it means to honor a talented racist. And I think that is perhaps the 
most valuable thing to take take away from all of this. I, I don't especially want to see the the bus replaced, <clears throat> but mm-hmm. nor do I want to see Lovecraft a Lovecraft himself honored more than he than he deserves to be, uh, or or this whole thing to be brushed under a rug. I, I would, yeah, it, it is appropriate to highlight it and to continue to highlight it and to highlight it wherever else it appears. You know, these these attitudes are part and parcel of the history of society and the history of our field. And we can't explain, you know, we, we shouldn't explain them why or hide them. We should well, look well, head on them, yeah. you know. No, I, I think to some extent, Ned is exactly right with that. I think I, I think we have to recognize that Lovecraft was not the only anti-Semite and racist who was operating in American or world culture in the 1930s. True, true. And the same issue, you know, the issue has come up again and again, um, uh, largely in Germany and largely with um, uh with, with with Jewish conductors is yeah. what do you do with with Richard Wagner's music? Yeah, uh, I mean Wagner was Wagner was not only uh, you know viciously weirdly racist himself, but he was sure. an active and recognized inspiration to the Nazis. I mean, there's yeah. somebody who actually influenced you know arguably in some yeah. uh, vaguely aesthetic way influenced the, the the attitudes that led to the Holocaust. Yeah. And yet Wagner's music, which shows up, um, there's um, the um, Lars von Trier film, uh, Melancholia, mm-hmm. uh, is full of Wagner's music. And let's face it, it's gorgeous music. Yeah. Um, and you can't really avoid that. You, you, you don't want to not be able to listen to the music because you know what, 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 the, um, what the composer was like. It's, it's interesting, one of the people who died in the last week we haven't acknowledged, but I think should be acknowledged, was Ken Russell. Mm-hmm. And Ken Russell did at least one pretty good science fiction movie, um, Altered States, but he also grappled with these issues. He did, he did a movie about uh, Wagner, and which is, is, I think it's the one that features Ringo Starr as a Nazi pope. Okay. Which only and, and and part of what you do is you you keep the music and character caricaturize the composer. That was more or less his strategy, which may not have been a very mature strategy. <laughs> but but it put things in perspective, at least. Um, yes. And if, 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 do you really want to think about what racial attitudes? I think you have to. But yeah, uh, do you want to avoid thinking about what kind of racial attitudes underline Robert E. Howard, for example? True. Or Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, I don't know about Wells. I don't know. This suggests to me that I don't know. Maybe it's something to think about in the new year. Maybe we'll we will get some people in on the podcast, and we'll. Talk about it a bit in, in in a bit greater depth. Maybe ask some of the people who are directly involved in the discussion if they'd like to take part. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you've talked about inviting Nettie on. Maybe we could get Nettie on, and maybe you know, maybe somebody from the World Fantasy Awards. Um, maybe, and and you sort of have a chat because I, I think the important thing to think about is th- this: it should not become, in my opinion, a criticism of. The World Fantasy Awards and, and 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 the or the jury who who performed remarkably well, or the administration. It's really about this issue of pre, you, know, pre, you know prejudice that, that and, and uh, problematic it's, it's attitudes and lots sort of things. Yeah, to Nettie's credit, this is an issue that should have been under discussion years ago. Sure. Uh, and you're right; it has nothing to do with what the judges think. I mean, you've been a judge, I've been a judge. I don't think at 
I don't think ever in the discussion of the judges does the issue come up. Do we want to send a bust of Lovecraft to this person? Uh, no, you're looking at what the best fiction is that you you read yes. that here. In the, yes, the exactly. Professional work. Well, I'm going to have a last little segue because whilst we haven't exactly rambled, we were comparing hmm. so we are getting towards the end of our time. I did some work this morning, Gary. I got up and I did some work. Do you know what I did? I'm so I envious. wrote my piece for the SF Signal Mind Meld that we're doing. Well, I did too, and we should see what we're doing. Now, okay, explain what we're doing here because we okay. don't want to. We 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 don't want to co-op the mind meld. Okay, if you say so. Uh, okay. Basically, for those who you don't like know, the mind meld. No, 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 no. The, the nice people at, at, at SF Signal write around to a whole bunch of people every now and again, and ask them to answer a question. The question they asked us indiv you know, individually, if we'd like to uh, be a part of responding to, was what genre-related books, movies, and other media are you most looking forward to in the new year? Now, I assume this will go up in the next week or two. Mm. And so, yes, it's, it's looking at the books you think are, well, that you're just looking forward to for, for 2012. Yeah. And I, what pleased me, I guess, was I found it pretty easy to come up with a couple of dozen books. I didn't come up with a couple of dozen, but I came up with some. I even came up with a couple of movies. I even came up with a couple of TV shows. I came up with, actually, this won't touch on the core of it. I came up with a small handful of movies, which oh. I'm happy to tell you what they are. Uh, okay. And a, a few things about, Okay. I'm looking forward to the new Ardman animation film, Pirates, an Adventure with Scientists. Okay. I'm looking I forward. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the two big Disney slash Pixar projects, Brave and John Carter. John Carter's on my list. Yep. I'm looking forward to The Hobbit, even though I think it could suck, and I don't know that we still really care, but uh, I am looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to Hugo, which is the Scorsese film that you've seen, but isn't out here yet. Right. Okay. And Hugo is, is very much. Yeah. Worth. I think uh, the the two big ones I had on my list were, uh, in, in terms of movies, were certainly John Carter, partly because Michael Chapin was involved at some yeah, level yeah. of the play and how to survive. The Hobbit, I think, if assuming that the Hobbit, which has had all kinds of problems, actually makes it out by the end of the year, um, is something that I think will be fine. I think it will be terrific. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. The other movie I think I mentioned was. Um, well, Cloud Atlas. Oh, okay. And of course, I have no idea what it's going to be like. No. It could be terrific. It could be. There is this odd thing going on with movies that have cosmic themes connected with very domestic themes, like, uh, well, Melancholia is one, uh, The Tree of Life is another. And I kind of like those things. Yeah. I think the Hunger Games movie is going to be pretty. Oh, cool. yes, I completely forgot about it. Yes. I mean, see, this is the thing. I get so, probably like yourself, I get so bogged down or involved in thinking about books, the book industry and what we're looking forward to, that other media kind of exist in a separate headspace. And sometimes, like, I don't mm -hmm. particularly think about it. It's like, I, I had to, you know, now that you say The Hunger Games, I'm going, of course, yes, I'm, it looks terrific. I'm really interested. Um, and, that, you know, if I saw a list of films, but I'd have to see somebody else's list to sit and go, oh, mm -hmm. yes, that, 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 so... And there's another movie that's not getting a lot of advanced publicity, but I hear about it here in Chicago because it's a Chicago-based actor, John Cusack, <clears throat> playing Edgar Allan Poe in his last days in the film okay. called Race. That sounds interesting. And Cusack, I think he looks like Poe. I, he's a good actor. Yeah. I think he could really do that. Well, that could be cool. The other thing, two things I'm looking forward to uh, are just TV, uh, and that's more Fringe, which I, which I hope will get renewed. Okay. <laughs> and more Doctor Who, which I hope will not get 
well, which I hope will continue, even though I think things are looking a little bit shaky for it, I think. Really? Well, well <coughs> we need to ask Paul about that, I suppose. I mean, Doctor Who, I've not watched, I, I, I'm not, I have to convince, okay, confess, compared to, to all of you people in Australia and everybody in England, I've not watched Doctor Who on a kind of regular basis for years, but I, every time I dip into it, I think, this is the one science fiction series I know where people seem to know something about science fiction when they're writing the scripts. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I think so. I, mean, I know Paul is very much part of it. Uh, there's one thing which is not a science fiction series, which I loved the first three or four episodes of, was the BBC, the new BBC series, Sherlock Holmes. Yep. Uh, oh, yes, which yes. Modernizes, modernizes Sherlock Holmes in ways that are utterly logical. And uh, the, the other two that I'm curious about, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming the second season of Game of Thrones will be... Yes, yes, very much. Yeah. ...first season. And late in the year, there's supposedly going to be a miniseries based on Stephen King's Under the Dome. Okay. And that intrigues me because my sense is Under the Dome is not really a horror novel. It's one of Steve King's just massively... I've not finished it. I, I don't even have a copy of it. I looked at a sample. Yeah. But my, my general sense is that when a, Stephen, when a movie is made from a Stephen King uh, story or novel, two things, have to, two things seem to indicate a good movie. One yeah. is that Stephen King himself has nothing to do with it. <laughs> okay. And the second is that probably the best movies are the ones made from his least fantastic stories. Uh, Stand yeah. By Me, for example, and so forth. And uh, Under the Dome seems to be the kind of thing that could yield a really good miniseries. Yes, I think that's true. We shall see. It'll be interesting. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm glad that I talk to you now rather than later because... I know that I would struggle to resist the temptation to expand my recommendations based on what you've told me. And because I've done it... I was it, wondering, uh, did they want us to do that in a kind of dialogue, or should we send No, no, things? no. I think we'll just send in our individual ones, and I know they've I also invited that. Elisa to, to be involved. Oh, that's cool. from Galactic, from Galactic Suburbia and 12th Planet Press. So we can all send them in individually and just see how it goes. All right, it'll be interesting to see what... Because there are things that you've mentioned I haven't thought of. There are things that Elise will mention that neither one of neither one of us will think of. Yep. Uh, and there's there's also I did add a little note at the beginning that you know the novels I've already read from 2012 uh, are all pretty good so far. Mm-hmm. But that's not I that's not technically looking forward to a novel, even though the novel may not be out till March. I, I also I'll I'll, pre- I'll, pre- I'll preview this here. Probably the greatest cheat for me on my list in some ways is I suggested that the th- the book I'm probably looking forward to the most is the one that I haven't heard of, heard of yet that's going to be surprisingly good because one of those I happens every right. year mm-hmm. and so that's the one I'm interested in that's a very good point because I went to all I did was go through Locus's recommended reading yeah. list tonight and I've seen previews of some movies that are coming out and uh, I've seen previews for Men in Black 3, I've seen previews mm. for Battleship, and I, I've, I've become addicted to previews. There's an app on my iPad that does nothing but movie previews. I've yeah, we've got one of those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you just look at previews. And the thing about previews, especially with special effects films, and I'm thinking of Battleship, which I don't know whether it's based on the game. Or it is, yeah. Based on okay. I think. Uh, it is. I love previews for all the really great special effects shots are in the previews and you think, okay, now I just have to go to the movie and wait for these shots to appear. 
Well, it's like I saw the trailer for uh, was it Ghost Rider 2. Yeah. <laughs> Which they're trying to persuade me was awesome. And I'm going, yeah, it probably won't be. But anyway. On that cheery note, Gary, I think we've now wandered far enough away from all good common sense. And it's time yes, to wind up for another week. And it's been enjoyable as usual. As always. You take care, my friend, and I will talk to you again next week. Talk to you next week. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye.